0: Welcome to this edition of DBSA's Real Recovery Podcast. For more information, visit us on our website, www.dbsalliance.org. We've been there. We can help. This is Julia Small, DBSA's Parent Volunteer Coordinator. Today, Dr. Ross Green joins me to talk about understanding and parenting easily frustrated and chronically inflexible children. Dr. Green is the originator of the collaborative problem-solving approach. He now refers to his model as collaborative and proactive solutions. He is the author of the highly acclaimed books, The Explosive Child and Lost at School. He consults extensively for general and special education schools, inpatient and residential facilities, and systems of juvenile detention, and lectures extensively throughout the world. Dr. Green, we're thrilled to have you join us this morning. Thank you for being here with us, and welcome.
1: Thanks for inviting me to do it.
0: Um, I thought we would just start out by um, asking you to give us an update on your new organization and any new research you've been working on.
1: Well, um, my nonprofit is called Lives in the Balance, L-I-V-E-S. The website is www.livesinthebalance.org. Um. Been around since 2009. It has been located, as have I, uh, in the state of Maine um, for the last two years. Um, we are um, well. Obviously, if people visit the Lives in the Balance website, they'll find a mammoth amount of free resources on collaborative and proactive solutions, which is the model I delineated in the Explosive Child and Lost at School. Um, but lies in the Balance also advocates on behalf of behaviorally challenging kids and their parents, teachers, and caregivers. And more recently, we've been turning our attention to the systemic issues that continue to make it very difficult for at-risk kids and their families to access help and that often cause them to slip through the cracks and send them down the road to adverse outcomes that we believe are very preventable. And so that's one of the things uh, Lives in the Balance has been moving into more recently. In terms of new research, um, there's a five-year National Institutes of Mental Health funded study that took place at the Virginia Tech Child Study Center, um, replicating a study that I published in 2004 comparing um, my CPS model to um, the reward and punishment approach um, that is very popular um, out there. And um, many of the papers uh, coming from that study um, are now being submitted to journals and are starting to come out. And people can find those on the uh, Research Etc. page on the Lives in the Balance website as well. We also have um, data from the juvenile detention system in the state of Maine that we have begun reporting on, as well as from a 15 school project uh, in the state of Maine where we have shown significant reductions in discipline referrals and suspensions and detentions when schools implement uh, the CPS model. And finally, we have Very nice research coming out of another school system in the Oakland, California area where they have been implementing the CPS model, and um, that's looking pretty good, too. So lots of exciting things happening.
0: Yeah, it sounds very promising. For our listening audience who might not be familiar with collaborative and proactive solutions, can you give us a brief overview of what we're talking about with Plan A, B, and C and how they're used with children who have low frustration tolerance?
1: Well, what I did um, first uh, in The Explosive Child and even before that was I um, basically delineated three ways in which parents respond to problems and unmet expectations in their kids, and uh teachers as well, so it's more adults, it's not just parents. And I called them a long time ago, Basket A, B, and C. They're now called Plan A, B, and C, but the concepts are basically the same. Um, Given the universe of different ways in which adults respond to unsolved problems, as I call them, um, basically they can be broken down into three basic approaches. Plan A is when the adult is solving the problem unilaterally. Typically that occurs through the imposition of adult will. Usually the words are some variant of I've decided that, and this is when the adult is deciding what the solution is to the problem. Uh, Of course, the problem with solving problems that way is that Plan A is a very common cause of challenging episodes in challenging kids. And so if you're looking to reduce challenging episodes in challenging kids, Plan A is probably not going to be your best bet. Plan C is when you are setting aside a particular unsolved problem, at least for now, um, that's one way to reduce challenging episodes. If if the problem has been removed from the kid's radar screen, uh he's not going to have a challenging episode in response to that problem. So Plan C can be very useful. A lot of people m- misconstrue Plan C as giving in, but really what Plan C is, is prioritizing. And it's basically saying you can't work on everything at once. Some things you're not going to be working on right now, so you're going to set them aside. Because many behaviorally challenging kids have many, many unsolved problems. And one of the biggest mistakes that we make is we try to solve them all at once, thereby pretty much guaranteeing that none of them at all will get solved. So plan C is very important. But what if we are interested in reducing challenging episodes, which means we're not going to be doing plan A, but we are interested in solving the problem, which means we're not going to be doing plan C. That's where Plan B comes in. Plan B is where you're solving the problem, but instead of solving it unilaterally, you're solving it collaboratively. And one of the things I've done in, in my books and on the Lives in the Balance website is describe in great detail how one would go about solving a problem collaboratively. But when you're solving a problem collaboratively, the kid is your partner, um, your teammate, not your adversary, not your enemy, um, plan B does not cause challenging episodes, and Plan B is a very effective way to get problems solved. As I always say, any problem that you could solve using Plan A, you can also solve using Plan B. So those are the three plans, and um, that's the brief overview.
0: Okay. So what is what do you do as the adult when you and your child agree on a solution, and then your child won't do what he, he or she has agreed to do? Well, that's usually a sign
1: of uh, one of three things, one or more of three things. Um, a, a solution that an adult and a child agree to has to meet two criteria. It's got to be realistic, meaning both parties can actually do what they're agreeing to do. It's got to be mutually satisfactory, meaning the solution truly addresses the concerns of both parties. Um, if a solution isn't working, often it's because it wasn't realistic in the first place. And so one of the most important parts of solving a problem collaboratively is not signing off on the first solution that gets put on the table, but really evaluating, really contemplating, is this something both of us will be able to do reliably? If not, then you don't have a good solution yet. But many adults run with a solution that they actually already know isn't realistic, so that's not ideal. That's, that's not gonna solve the problem. Um, many solutions don't fly because they actually didn't address the concerns of both parties, concerns that we are identifying and trying to get addressed through the process of solving a problem collaboratively. Um, so sometimes when a solution isn't working, it's simply a sign that the concerns of both parties weren't addressed by the solution. And then, of course, we've got to go back to the drawing board and figure out what aspect of the two parties' concerns weren't addressed and come up with a refined address of uh, concerns. And there's another reason, reason number three, is that when you do plan B, you try to get as many of the kids' concerns about a particular unsolved problem identified, and you try to get as many concerns of the adult about that unsolved problem identified, and then you come up with a solution that will address those concerns, But sometimes in our first go at Plan B, there are some concerns that simply don't get identified. We tried our best to identify them all, but some of them didn't get identified. And the solution is only going to address the concerns that we did identify. But the solution isn't going to address the concerns that we didn't identify in our first attempt at Plan B. That's another good reason to go back to the drawing board and um, figure out if there are concerns that weren't identified in our first attempt to solve the problem collaboratively. So I should also mention, it's often not just kids that aren't able to agree, to to follow through on an agreed upon solution, it's often adults as well, Um, but it's usually one of those things that explains it.
0: Right, and Sometimes this situation might come up, I would think. How do parents collaborate with children who might have trouble getting in touch with their own feelings or have difficulty articulating why they become so frustrated and explosive? Well,
1: um, it's an interesting question because the process of solving a problem collaboratively actually doesn't involve much discussion of the kid's feelings. Feelings are different than concerns. So if we were to say to a kid, um, I've noticed, this is what the problem-solving process would begin with, I've noticed that you're having difficulty um, completing your math homework, what's up? What we're looking for there isn't, well, it's very frustrating, or "Well, I get mad, um, or "Well, I get angry? Because that actually doesn't really tell us what's getting in the kid's way. I'm having difficulty with the double-digit division problems on the math worksheet. That's the kid's concerns. That's really what's getting in his way, and that's what we're going to address. So while no one should be allergic to talking with a kid about their feelings, feelings actually don't bring us much closer a good part of the time to what's really getting in the kid's way. So um, feelings would not be the primary thing that we're trying to address when we're trying to solve a problem. And... Um, We're actually not looking for the kid to articulate why they become so frustrated and explosive in general. What we're doing is we're saying we are identifying the problems that are causing them to become frustrated and explosive in the first place. And we do that through an instrument that's also on the Lives in the Balance website. It's in the paperwork section. It's called the Assessment of Lagging Skills and Unsolved Problems. And it's those unsolved problems that we are actually trying to get solved. So we're not having generic discussions with the kid about why he gets so frustrated and explosive because he's getting frustrated and explosive in response to many, many different unsolved problems. And he's getting frustrated and explosive in response to those unsolved problems for completely different reasons. So if we ask a kid why he becomes so frustrated and explosive, which is very general, we actually are very likely to get something like, I don't know, or silence. But I find that when we're asking a kid about a specific unsolved problem that we are identifying ahead of time so that we can have these conversations with the kid proactively, not emergently, I find that we get very specific information and that's what we're trying to address. So we're actually not trying to address generically Why is he becoming so frustrated and explosive? And quite frankly, he may not even know the answer to that. But he sure is going to be able to tell you what's getting in the way of him having difficulty completing his math homework. He's going to be able to tell you what is getting in the way of him brushing his teeth before he goes to bed at night. He's going to be able to tell you why he's having trouble getting off the video game to get ready for bed or to come in for dinner. Um, Those things he's going to be able to give you information for. Um, And so the nice thing is the whole process between the assessment of lagging skills and unsolved problems and doing plan B, what we're talking with the kid about is very specific unsolved problems that are causing him to become frustrated and explosive, not generically why he becomes frustrated and explosive in the first place.
0: Are you able to use this system with kids who have language processing problems? Yep, it's interesting. It adds a new dimension
1: to the process because what it basically says is that words may not be the most efficient way for the kid to communicate uh, his concerns and solutions to particular unsolved problems. And the main hard thing about that is that we adults tend to prefer communicating in words. So what we often have to do with kids who are nonverbal or are very compromised in the language processing and communication realm, is find other means of communicating with them, and also on the Lies in the Balance website, in the paperwork section, there are some sample um, pictures that an artist uh, drew up for me to depict what I did with one of the kids that I've done this with, um, where you can depict unsolved problems and potential solutions to them in pictures, and communicate very nicely about uh, concerns and solutions with a kid. The wonderful thing about kids who are nonverbal or who are very compromised in their language processing skills is that they are communicating with us. Not that they're not communicating. Growling is communicating. Grunting is communicating. Screaming is communicating. It's just that they aren't communicating with us through our preferred modality. But that doesn't mean that we can't communicate with them, and it certainly doesn't mean that we can't solve problems collaboratively with them.
0: Right. Let's get on to um, the the issue of safety. Um, In The Explosive Child, you write about putting safety issues in Plan A and letting go of most everything else. Many explosive kids have problems transitioning and never seem to be able to move out of that crisis plan. What would your recommendations be for the parents of kids who never leave the crisis plan? Well, um, the first thing
1: I would say is that Putting safety issues in Plan A um, is what we're doing very early on, Um, although often well, the the level of analysis that we'd like to be at is what problems are causing those safety issues. So if a kid is about to walk in front of a speeding bus, you're not going to do Plan B with them you're not going to simply set it aside, which would be plan C, so you probably have to yank on the kid's arm and pull him out of the path of the bus. That's plan A. But as I always say, if what you've noticed about your kid is that he seems to have a propensity for walking in front of speeding buses, and therefore the parent has a propensity for having a yank on his arm, the problem isn't getting solved through plan A. And so, Putting safety issues in Plan A is not a bad place to start, but if the kid continues to have safety issues in response to the unsolved problem, Plan A is not getting that problem solved, and we're probably gonna have to start using Plan B to get that problem solved so that we understand why is this kid uh, walking in front of speeding buses? Why is this kid um, letting go of my hand and potentially doing dangerous things in the parking lot? Um, Why is that stuff happening? And those are things that we can talk about the kid with in Plan B. So safety issues don't necessarily stay in Plan A permanently, especially if they're chronic. Um, Now, so I don't actually talk much at all about crisis planning. I simply let adults know if the kid is doing something dangerous and you need to put a stop to it, Plan A is an option. Um, The goal is to stabilize things, and stabilizing things, the biggest part of stabilizing things as it relates to my model is Plan C, removing expectations that are causing crises. If they're removed, then the kid isn't going to exhibit challenging behavior in response to them. Now, I'm hoping people aren't going to stop listening because – Often people stop listening right after I say that line, and the next question is, yeah, but we can't just let him do anything he wants. Exactly. But that's because I wasn't quite done yet. Plan B is where we're going to start slowly but surely solving the problems that are causing crises. As those problems get solved collaboratively, and as we come up with solutions that are working, and they're realistic, and they're mutually satisfactory, Um, we're no longer in a crisis because we now have solutions to the problems that were making us feel like we were in a crisis in the first place. Now, there's one other thing I should mention, especially for kids who have mental health issues that would be well addressed by medication. Medication can be very stabilizing as well. And so the combination of Plan C, sometimes medication, and slowly but surely getting the ball rolling on Plan B and getting solutions in place for the problems that are causing crises are how we slowly but surely come out of a crisis plan.
0: Right. Here's a question from one of our Balanced Mind volunteers. How does a parent determine if a child's behavior is willful or a reaction or mood trigger? It's a question
1: I get frequently, but it's um, a question that I sort of have a pat answer to. I assume it's not willful, but good luck trying to figure it out. Um, I don't know how you figure out whether it's willful. The good news is um, it doesn't really matter. It's an unsolved problem, and because it's an unsolved problem, the decision that we have to make is not... Is this willful behavior or is this, a lot of people will call it, is this behavior or is this emotional? um, Or is this behavior or is this um, mental health? Quite frankly, I don't make that distinction very much either. Bottom line is, it's an unsolved problem. And the big, I find that parents and other adults often become paralyzed when they try to figure out, is this the kid just wanting his way, which is usually the definition of willful, or is this his mental health issues getting in the way? Um, that's actually paralyzing. You, we become uh, things uh, open up a little bit when our level of analysis isn't, is this willful or is this a reaction to an anxiety or mood trigger? Uh, but, and Once again, good luck figuring that out with great precision. The level of analysis we want to get to is what is this unsolved problem causing this behavior? Are we going to address that unsolved problem using plan A, plan B, or plan C? And when we decide those things ahead of time, then we can start solving problems proactively rather than emergently. So a major thrust of the CPS model is to get caregivers out of the heat of the moment, out of deciding rapidly is this willful or is this a reaction to an anxiety or mood trigger, moving away from looking at the kid's behavior and instead focusing on the problems that are causing those behaviors, and then proactively deciding is this in plan B? Is this in plan C? Is this one of the ones we are just letting go right now, setting aside for now because it's not a high priority, or is this one of the ones that we're actually solving collaboratively? That's the level of analysis that I find is much more helpful to caregivers than in the heat of the moment trying to decide, is this behavior willful or a reaction to an anxiety or mood trigger?
0: Something that comes up often in the Balanced Mind Parent Network is dealing with a child's self-care and hygiene. Many parents struggle with getting their children to bathe and brush their teeth, even when the parent explains the health and social concerns. What suggestions do you have for approaching a child who battles basic hygiene daily?
1: Well, um, I'd want to be real specific about what self-care and hygiene issues the kid is having. I would call those unsolved problems, are we talking about difficulty brushing teeth, difficulty taking a bath or shower at least every other day, difficulty washing hair, difficulty using deodorant, there's lots of um, hygiene issues that would have to be broken down into specific unsolved problems. The way I would approach them is, as I just said, in the first place I would decide are we handling these specific unsolved problems, each one individually, is this plan C, Or is this plan B? Is this one of the ones we are setting aside for now so as to help both the kid and the caregivers be more available for the unsolved problems that we've decided are our higher priorities? Once again, if we try working on everything at once, we're going to end up solving nothing at all. And if it's plan B, certainly having the parent explain the health and social concerns could be an important part of the process of trying to get the problem solved. But one thing's for certain, it wouldn't be sufficient. Um, Plan B actually consists of three steps. The first step, called the empathy step. This is where we're getting the kids' concerns entered into consideration on the unsolved problem we're talking with him about, preferably proactively. What I find is that kids have valid concerns about teeth brushing and about showering. A lot of the concerns are sensory, but I wouldn't bet the house on that because you never know what you're gonna hear. Um, Hair washing, um, deodorant. Um, Kids have very important concerns. If all we're doing is telling the kid our concerns, this problem isn't gonna get solved. It is in the second step of Plan B, called the Define Adult Concerns step, that the adult is entering their concerns into consideration. So step number one, let's hear about what's getting in the way for the kid. Step number two, let's hear about the adult's concerns. And bottom line is adult concerns usually fall into one or both of two categories. How is this unsolved problem affecting the kid? How is this unsolved problem affecting other people? And that roughly would fall into health and social concerns. So, you know, the nice thing is, Parents have important, legitimate concerns as well. Parents want to have influence. Parents have experience and wisdom that they want to make sure the kid benefits from. All of that experience and all of that wisdom and all of those concerns are packaged into the Define Adult Concerns step. And then in step number three, what I've always called the invitation, this is where we are inviting the kid to come up with a solution together, A solution that meets two criteria, realistic and mutually satisfactory. So the interesting thing is um, a lot of parents hope that if they simply express their concerns, um, the kid will quickly recognize the wisdom of the parent's concerns, and change their ways. But the kids who we're talking about here are not those kids, and quite frankly, aren't most kids. There are probably some kids out there who you tell them what your concerns are, and at least on some unsolved problems, it registers, and they go along with what you wanted them to do. But probably not the kids that most of the people who are going to be listening to this are um, thinking about right now. They require three steps, not just one step. And um, I find that when we get the kids' concerns on the table in that first step, they are far more receptive to hearing our concerns and very receptive to participating in a process in which the problem is getting solved together, collaboratively, and in a way that is realistic and mutually satisfactory.
0: Right. Um, We've heard this situation pretty frequently, How come a child can hold it together at school and explode the minute he walks in the door from school? How does a parent get his hands wrapped around that kind of a situation?
1: Well, there's a few things that could be coming into play um, in that scenario. Um, First of all, um, sometimes kids are on medications that help them hold it together at school. Um, but then they are coming off of those medications when they get arrived back at home. And so what you're really dealing with is kind of two different kids, the medicated version of your child and the unmedicated version of your child. Um, So it could be a medicine issue. Um, Could be that um, you're dealing with the embarrassment factor here. Um, Most people I know, kids included, are able to hold it together in conditions in which they would be incredibly embarrassed if they couldn't then decompensate uh, when they get back home. Uh, They can't maintain the embarrassment factor 24 hours a day. And plus, um, home is a place where most of us look worse than we do when we are outside of the home. So that could be coming into play as well. The kid puts massive amounts of energy into holding it together at school, and then kind of decompensates when he gets home. Um, there's a variety of other possibilities, but one of the biggest is that um, the unsolved problems, there may be unsolved problems that are at home, but not at school. Schools tend to be more structured. If a kid isn't sure what to do at school, he can sometimes look at his classmates for cues. Homes tend to be less structured, less predictable, So there's a variety of uh, factors that could be coming into play here. Uh, This is why I um, get so concerned when I hear the folks at school um, basically saying that the kid is having more difficulty at home than he is at school because the parents don't really know what they're doing or aren't tough enough or aren't firm enough. I usually find that that explanation um, doesn't have any legs at all. So it's usually one of the things that I just mentioned. And um, bottom line is we've got to figure it
0: out. And then this is on the flip side. What do you do when you're implementing CPS at home, but your child is exposed to a rewards punishment system at school and is not thriving in that setting?
1: Well, the first thing I should say is that there are some kids who are getting CPS at home and are getting rewarding and punishing at school and are still doing okay at school. So just because a kid is getting rewarding and punishing in a different environment doesn't necessarily guarantee that it's going to be going poorly in that environment. However, the key part of that question are the words, and is not thriving in that setting. Um, That usually speaks to the need to educate the people who are in that setting about and, and bottom line is, if you have a kid who has special needs, whether those special needs are physical, mental health, academic, um, it's not so easy to get by unless many of the different people who are working with your child understand who he is, understand his difficulties, and understand what their potential role is, both uh, in terms of their capacity to make things worse but also in terms of their capacity to make things better. The most difficult part of that when it comes to challenging behavior is that while most people these days are fine acknowledging that if a kid is having difficulty reading, it's not that he's lazy, it's not that he doesn't want to, it's because he's having bona fide difficulties and skills, regrettably there are still many people out there who think that when a kid has challenging behavior, that's motivational in nature, not lagging skills. But the interesting thing is the research that has accumulated over the last 40 to 50 years on behaviorally challenging kids provides us with very compelling um, information about what's really getting in the way for behaviorally challenging kids. And it's lagging skills. And so the hardest part is it's conceivable that parents or other caregivers are still going to bump into people don't know about that research and aren't yet aware that a kid is having behavioral difficulties because of lagging skills um, and therefore believe that a reward and punishment program is a good way to go. Um, There's nothing to take the place of educating those people. Sometimes that can be done through a book. Sometimes that can be done through a website. Um, Sometimes that can be done through a casual conversation, But nothing takes the place of making sure that everybody who's working with a behaviorally challenging child understands what's getting in his way, understands what seems to help, and understands what seems to make things worse. Now, when it comes to the convincing department as it relates to what's making things worse, uh, we don't really usually have to look too far. It's usually quite clear what interventions are making things better, but also what interventions are making things worse. The key here, and this is often hard, is to make sure that that information disseminating process doesn't become adversarial, um, that it remains collaborative, and that is not so easily done, um, but we should strive for it anyways. If If we can't achieve it, then we sometimes have special education law doing some blocking for us. Sometimes we need a mental health professional to do some blocking for us, and that might, person might be doing the educating. Sometimes when parents are trying to educate someone about their child, they are misperceived as making excuses, as uh, molly coddling a lot of those terms that people use when a parent isn't approaching the child's difficulties. By being firm and consistent, all of those things that uh, a lot of people think you should be, but it also often becomes clear that the firm, consistent stuff is making things worse. So the evidence is usually right before our eyes, and hopefully that evidence of the things that are making things worse propels people into thinking about alternative ways of approaching the kid. Um, Nothing takes the place of working together. Sometimes parents need a little bit of help that pave the way for working together with people who don't yet understand why challenging kids are challenging.
0: Right. What do you do if you try and try and try and and CPS just doesn't seem to be working?
1: Well, um, a few different answers to that one. Um, the holy grail of CPS working is the, the you know the sort of the ultimate endpoint is that we tried to solve a problem and we were successful in doing it. We came up with a um, durable, mutually satisfactory, realistic solution and the problem is now solved. That's the Holy Grail. Um, Sometimes it takes a long time to get to the Holy Grail, but I always say that CPS is quote unquote working. Even before we get to a solution, that solves a problem durably. CPS is working if the kid is finally talking with us about what's getting in his way. It's working. We we haven't gotten to the Holy Grail yet, but CPS is working. CPS is working if we adults now finally understand what's been getting in the kid's way. CPS is working if the kid is now participating with us in a collaborative, non-adversarial process of trying to solve the problems that continue to get in his way and continue to cause him to behave in ways that everybody, probably including him too, wishes he wouldn't. CPS is working if he's trying to come up with solutions that not only address his concerns, but also address our concerns. CPS is working if he's listening to our concerns. So there's a lot of ways in which CPS is working, even if we haven't gotten to the Holy Grail yet. So that's that's one answer. But here's another. Um, there's lots of reasons. There's lots of factors that could get in the way of CPS working. Possibility number one, the kid may be so hyperactive, so, have such a short fuse, be so impulsive, be so irritable that they can't even participate in the process. Those are some of the things that medication might help with so that the kid is actually able to participate in the process. Many adults have a great deal of difficulty actually doing Plan B. Um, What would I do if that was the case? I would do one of two things. There's an enormous amount of resources on the Lives in the Balance website to help people do Plan B well. Almost no matter where you turn on that website, there are resources to help out. But I would like to point out one place on the website that um, is relatively new and that a lot of people are finding to be extremely helpful. Um, there's a guided tour for parents and a guided tour for educators on the Lives in the Balance website, and it is filled with streaming video and audio programming to help caregivers master the three basic parts of Plan B, part of, of the model, collaborative and proactive solutions. First Part is to make sure you have the right lenses on. Who is my kid? Why is he behaviorally challenging? What's getting in his way? Part two, and there's lots of streaming video to help people master that part. Part two, identifying lagging skills and unsolved problems. There's audio programming and lots of resources to help people learn how to do that and get good at it. Part three, solve problems collaboratively. That tends to be one of the parts that people struggle with the most, but there's all kinds of streaming video and audio programming to help people do that. So the first place I would probably turn if we believe that we've got the medication squared away, and first there's a lot of kids who have, who, who, um, there's medic, there's no medication to address the things that I mentioned earlier. Uh, let me put that a different way. They're on the medication that would address the things that I mentioned earlier, or the things that are getting in their way, there's no medication that would address. Um, then it sometimes is time to consult with a mental health professional who has familiarity with the CPS model, and there's a bunch of them listed on a different website, CTSconnection.com. But probably the first place I would turn is the Live in the Balance website. Uh, get on the Lies in the Balance website. Site, take the guided tour for parents if you're a parent. Take the guided tour for educators or if you're an educator. Worst case scenario, if the guided tour doesn't help you get there, I do a web-based radio program for parents every week. People can call in and ask questions as they're struggling with implementing the model. I do a web-based radio program for educators once a month. People can call in, ask questions, get help. If people are disinclined to call in or if the radio program airs live at a time that is convenient for them, they can always send me a question through the contact form on the in the Balance website, and I'll answer it on the air. So there's all kinds of resources out there to help people do TPS well. Um, hopefully, all of those resources will help people get on top of it.
0: That sounds really helpful. Dr. Green, it's been a real pleasure to have you join us this morning. Thank you so much for sharing your experience and knowledge with our parents. Thanks
1: very much for having me on, and um, I hope parents get some benefit out of this program as well.
0: been a production of the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. For more information, go to www.dbsalliance.org or call 1-800-826-3632. We've been there. We can help.